0: I definitely describe myself as Scottish.
1: People ask you, where are you from? And when you say Scotland, it's normally a pretty good answer.
2: I think in recent times it's been easier to be a Scot. We seem to have come out from the, the shadow of our bigger neighbour.
0: Oh, I think I'm Scottish, actually. We will never surrender, our chips.
1: Chibs. I don't like the fact that we are um, a subjugated nation.
2: We've really rediscovered our national identity and there's a feeling that you know, the best is still to come.
3: Walking down George IV Bridge from Edinburgh's Royal Mile, you soon become aware that there's a building on the opposite corner that's quite unlike any other around. It's the modern extension to the National Museum of Scotland. David Clarke, the museum's keeper of archaeology.
1: It's a very striking modern building. Um, with a tower on the corner and the walls essentially clad in Clashac sandstone. The idea, I think, was to echo aspects of Scotland's past architecture. So there's all sorts of references in the building.
3: The principle for a National Museum of Scotland had been under discussion for 40 years, but it only came to fruition with the prospect of political devolution in the late 1990s. This background sets Scotland apart from other small European nations.
1: The fact that Scotland didn't have a national museum is in itself quite interesting. When you think of most European, small European nations, that was one of the things they got in the middle of the 19th century, big time. One of the ways they asserted their national identity was the building of a national museum.
3: What difference does having this museum make to Scotland today? And how has an increased sense of nationhood affected the way the Scots have chosen to portray their history? Inside the museum, there are seven levels of galleries, arranged chronologically from bottom to top. Let's start at the bottom, with David Clarke's Early People Gallery.
1: The opening moments are a set of figures by Eduardo Paolozzi with objects within them, in cases built into the figures and there are four groups of figures representing the four conceptual themes in the exhibition.
3: The sculptor Eduardo Paolozzi was born in Edinburgh, made his name in London and has a global reputation. By commissioning Paolozzi, David Clark could be sure of a strong statement to set the tone for the rest of his gallery but the figures also carry some educational messages.
1: First of all, they allow us to avoid all the things we can't talk about, like did these guys have long hair or short hair? Did the men have beards or not? Um, most of the time, we don't know what clothes people wore in prehistory and early history. And again, parallax enables us to avoid those issues. The jewellery, because it's, uh, so to speak, worn by people who are essentially the same size as us, by the time you put case around it, to keep everything in scale, the figures have to be one and a quarter life size. So the sort of unstated message, because we know from our focus groups that most people think of people in prehistory as sort of squat grunting savages, is that there's a sort of subtext here of these guys are big and they're bigger than you, you're looking up to them.
3: And there's another fundamental reason for the Paolozis, to inject a bit of humanity into the exhibition.
1: Human groups arrive when the ice melts around 8,000 BC. But for the first 8,000 years of the 9,000 years this gallery is concerned with, for reasons we don't understand, they don't make human images. And so there's a real danger that, apart from the Romans and the post-Roman period, you, you know, you're going through a display that's without any sense of humanity. The objects become sort of you know, almost devoid of. So I wanted to start with this really big, bold statement about humans.
3: One decision, controversial when the gallery first opened, was to reveal a political dimension in
1: archaeological evidence. I was always interested in power and social organisation as expressed in the archaeological record. And so we tried to construct a, a set of themes which reflect that, which I start with warfare and then go to imperialism, because, of course, upstairs you see the Scots as so to speak, significant players in the British Empire, and we thought it was important to remind them that they had once been the toe end of somebody else's empire.
3: One of the results of this approach was that the display labelling identifies the ancient residents of Scotland as we, set against the waves of invaders who are defined as them. For David, this was partly down to a shortage of information.
1: I used to go to meetings of our education group who used to complain that I couldn't give them the names of people, Uh, that the only people that were named were the aliens, if I can put it that way, like Romans or Vikings, Yeah, people from outside. So we deliberately adopted we to cover all those people we don't have a name for and to try and suggest that they're alongside us guys, they're our ancestors then we consciously name the Romans and Vikings from time to time and they appear as different.
3: But for some people, the decision to use them and us actively fosters a stronger sense of Scottish identity.
1: In one sense, of course, the displays are a commentary on Scottish identity, but their very existence now is a factor in the development of future identity because what they brought to people will change their perceptions about what they think about Scotland. I don't think that we discussed the idea that this was a creation of Scottish identity, but I think it was always there. And it was always there because this is something truly momentous. Most curators never get a chance to do even major galleries. Even fewer get the chance to create a national museum. You know, So I think that everyone was conscious of this. The team was small and consequently had a huge amount of work to do. I mean, I think all of them felt this was a moment which will never be repeated. Yeah, I'm building a new national museum, I mean, my God.
3: From David's early people in the basement, you have to climb to the top of the building to bring Scotland's story up to date. In 2008, a new gallery opened, called Scotland A Changing Nation, it chronicles the period from the First World War to the present day. Here's Maureen Barry, a key member of the gallery design team.
0: The idea behind the gallery is to not explore a history of Scotland in the last century, but aspects and themes have affected those who are not just Scots, but those living and working in Scotland today and in the past hundred years. So we want to chart different themes. You can't do a gallery on the 20th and 21st century without tapping into film and poetry and music and have all the films in the gallery, you have to take advantage of that. In the gallery there are 29 personal stories that are not life stories but they tell people's experience at a certain time. Designing a
3: 20th century gallery brings many new challenges and opportunities and Maureen brings a correspondingly different set of professional skills.
0: My job on this particular project was a storyteller. I I had to find a narrative through the stories pull that together and make it cohesive get a a continuity for the visitor going through the displays Um, and that's what I enjoy, I enjoy storytelling objects are fantastic, don't get me wrong I absolutely love objects but they are nothing without the story behind them they need the person there telling their own story and in their own voice, that's very important I think I'm
1: Scottish even though it's part of Great Britain I think I'm
0: Scottish actually we will never surrender our
3: Halfway around the gallery, there's a place where you can sit for a while, in front of three giant video screens displaying, well, just ordinary Scottish people talking about their lives, their country and their feelings.
0: One of the things that we did for the gallery was have a specially commissioned film, One Nation, Five Million Voices, and it's been incredibly popular because it allows people's voices to be heard and languages and dialect and words peculiar to Scotland and people's interpretation of them. Um, it also asks people to explain a bit about the Scottish character. Um, and that's really interesting. It's worked incredibly well for us because it very much gives the gallery a voice.
2: We've really rediscovered our national identity and there's a feeling that the best is still
3: to come. We asked Ian Donaghy, reader in history at the Open University in Scotland,
2: what he thought of the new gallery? Well, of course, it is a highly selective uh, exhibition, but within the constraints of a relatively small and quite difficult space, I think that the themes have been very well selected. And the upshot of that is that there's a, an extremely strong emphasis on Scotland's role in the modern world and its triumphs. But not forgetting the tribulations, and indeed what we might describe as difficult heritage, all sorts of social issues about uh, poverty, about uh, poor housing, about poor health, and all the rest of it. These, these issues, which are tricky and difficult in terms of um, museum presentation and interpretation, um, are, are certainly not sidelined, not by any means. And I think one comes away with an impression that not only have the themes been extremely well selected, but the artefacts and the interpretation of these things has been extremely judicious. And the presentation is lively and entertaining and highly interactive.
0: We're now on the roof terrace of the National Museum of Scotland. We're surrounded by culture and heritage when we come up here. We can see the castle, we can see the Royal Mile. It's a fantastic view and it really immerses you in that culture and history.
3: You can see almost everything from the roof terrace, except the Parliament building itself. But it's hard to visit the museum without feeling the Parliament's presence.
0: I think when we started to work on the gallery, the presence of the Scottish Parliament became significant. We borrowed a lot of material from the Parliament itself, from the Mace model to Donald Dewar material and so on. We had fantastic access. I think it made the curator who was working on the section, um, he developed it much more than he would have, I think, originally, because of the material that he was given and the material that he had.
3: So how much of the museum's confidence and exuberance derives from it being designed at a time when Scotland was flexing its political muscles?
0: We've always had a voice in Scotland. From the declaration of our growth to present day, we've always been vocal and, and taken our politics very, very seriously the Parliament has given us a renewed interest in politics Um, and it's seen I think young people take a real interest in politics I think in One Nation, Five Million Voices the film, you hear people talking about that and and young people talking about politics in Scotland and how they feel um, about how the nation's developing it's it's a fantastic thing to see I have a fondness for the um, parliamentary model, the model of the Scottish Parliament that sits inside the tent, the tent that went round Scotland to canvas for votes for a Scottish Parliament. It's scaffolding poles and plastic sheeting and it's it's set up in the gallery as it was when it did its travels round Scotland. But the fantastic thing is, inside it sits a model of the new Scottish Parliament. To me, that's the icing on the cake.
3: Ian Donaghy does see a connection between what's going on in the museum and changes
2: in the wider political context. I think in general terms there's very little doubt that the political context in Scotland you know, has very much influenced what's going on in the museums and heritage institutions in this country. Uh, it seems to me that the pace has gathered very rapidly since 1999 with the establishment of the Parliament. And I think particularly so Uh, in uh, the past year or 18 months, uh, in 2008, at this point in time, there's very little doubt whatsoever that uh, the impetus uh, for uh, addressing uh, nationalist issues and issues of Scottish identity is very, very much more acute than it was previously. And we see in uh, the new display at the National Museum, I think, a consciousness of that Uh, An awareness that, you know, uh, people, the ordinary everyday things, that um, Scottish achievements but Scottish failures uh, need to be clearly articulated um, and at the same time celebrated. One commiserates with the difficult heritage, one recognises uh, that that there are major social and economic issues in this country, uh, but nonetheless... One celebrates the achievements and one particularly celebrates uh, the Scottish people and uh, their uh, desire, apparent for their desire uh, and aspirations uh, to uh, nationhood and um, possible independence.
3: After ten years at the early People Gallery, David Clark believes he too can see evidence of a developing sense of Scottish identity.
1: Until very recently... Scotland didn't actually teach its children Scottish history. It taught them British history, which was essentially English history. So I think when we opened, you know, for a lot of Scots, it was like a revelation that there was that much history to tell about Scotland.
3: Maureen Barry hopes that the new gallery will continue this process of changing outlooks and challenging assumptions over
1: time.
0: I would like the visitors to come to the gallery and have an experience that they've possibly not had in an exhibition before. I want them to go away and think that they're important, that their story is important, that they matter. But there is a huge buzz since the Parliament opened in 1998 and and coming up for that 10th year. I think Scotland has gone through some remarkable changes and, and a lot of them for the good.
3: From the Open University.